Good morning, Saints. Daryl asked the question earlier, do you ever start a project and feel like you bit off more than you can chew? My immediate response was every time I preach. Um, and I think especially this morning, what I'm going to talk about, I feel like um, uh, I, I haven't fully walked into everything that I say, but if, you know, if, if, if we're going to wait until a preacher is ready to fully do everything perfectly, um, there will be a lot fewer sermons and a lot fewer preachers. Um, it's just reality, guys. So... Um, at the beginning of this year, we talked about two main priorities for us as a church, knowing who we are in Christ and exercising the gifts of the Spirit. And so this morning, I want to kind of weave those two things together, and I'm going to talk primarily about um, our authority that God has given us, because I'm convinced that when we really know who we are, the authority that He has given us, that we're going to be more willing to exercise the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? And the, there's kind of an overarching theme, the title of the sermon on your notes there, Let Your Kingdom Come, because it's, it's as we're walking in who we are and using those gifts that his kingdom is going to be more manifested here on earth. So that's kind of the, the, the overall idea, and that's why I feel like I'm in over my head, and um, we, uh, we don't have nearly enough time to go through this. This should be like a 15-part sermon series, all right, but... We'll see what we can do. Let's pray. Father, we ask right now that you would, in your mercy, speak into us by your word and by your Holy Spirit. God, we, we want to know you more. We want to know more of your, uh, your work in our lives. And so we're inviting you to use these words this morning to make a difference in us and cause us to, to change and be altered by your word and by your spirit and follow you more fully. God, we thank you that you're going to do that because you're faithful. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we know that the Bible tells us in Hebrews 8, 1, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. We know that's Jesus, and we recognize the symbolism there that he's seated there with God, that's symbolic of the authority that he's been given. We get that. Um, we're going to talk more about that authority in a few minutes. But even though we understand that, I think that we can often miss passages like Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I mean, that seems foreign to us, and yet it's, it's right there in the word. We are seated with him in the heavenly realms, and that also symbolizes that authority that we have. A couple weeks ago, Steve Miller was, was preaching about who we are in Christ, and he said, we are sons and daughters in the same family in which Jesus is a son. We are beloved by the Father and co-heirs with Christ. I mean, what a, what a concept. We really got a hold of that. What a difference it would make. A few different times during Steve's message, he said, are we mindful of this? Do we really recognize who we are? Do you really think about yourself as a daughter or a son of the king? Do you really, do you really see yourself as seated with God in the heavenly realm? See, how we see ourselves is going to affect our willingness to step out in using the gifts that he gives us through his Holy Spirit. Uh, if you're his, his ambassador, um, that, that, then you're doing what he wants you to do. You're, you're speaking on his behalf. You're doing the things that he's wanting you to do. And you're, you're giving voice to words that are not going to be heard otherwise. 
And that's really our job as those ambassadors. And that's the authority that is giving us. But in order to do that confidently, we have to recognize, we have to walk into that authority that he has granted us. Mark eleven twenty three. this passage is, is, I think it's mind-boggling. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. You know, recently I read this verse and I tried to find an out. You know, I'm looking at it thinking, all right, maybe this was something that in their culture meant something different than what it actually says. You know, Daryl said earlier, bit off more than he can chew. I mean, he's not talking about biting anything or chewing, but we know what he meant, right? Okay, same, you know, I'm thinking, all right, maybe this was something in their culture, it meant something different. But every translation, and I looked at several different, quite a few different translations trying to find it out. But whether it was literal, word for word, all the way to to thought for thought and everything in between, they all phrase it practically the same way. This is a literal mountain that we can say, go jump in the lake and it's gonna go. That's amazing to me. I'm a little concerned about the tsunami effect, but sorry. Uh, Now you're all gonna be thinking about that. What does that mean? Okay, Um, but, but, but that's the authority that we have. That to me is crazy talk, and yet that's what it says. Matthew 8, beginning in verse 5, you all know this story. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. You know, we, we understand that concept intrinsically. We are all in some fashion, in some sort of authority structure whether that's in a a family situation, in a job situation, uh, kids at school, uh, civic organizations, uh, church, uh, just in society in general, we all understand that at some point there are people who are in authority over us and we have people who are in authority or that we are in authority over. We get that. I mean, we we understand what, what this guy is saying here. But I find it interesting that that same word that that centurion used is the word that Jesus used when he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. This isn't some kind of different concept here that Jesus is introducing. No, it's authority. And when he says all authority, that means that Jesus is over the, 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 the CEO of the biggest corporation in the world. He's over every president, every prime minister, every dictator. He has all authority. And if you keep reading in that verse, he says, I've been given all authority and I'm sending you. The implication is that he is giving us his authority. My goodness. That's a lot. All right, couple of just why don't we see this things here before we get into some of the the other things. Um, I think in our culture, we have difficulty grasping spiritual authority because we have a tendency to downplay the spiritual realm. We don't think about that. You know, we, we live in the, in the physical realm, and so we don't think as much about the spiritual realm. Um, and, and, and it can be because of fear, but think about it. If, if we're afraid of stepping out 
where is that fear coming from? Or maybe better yet, where is it clearly not coming from? It's clearly not coming from God, right? I mean, he, he doesn't want us to be afraid to do the things that the Holy Spirit is telling us to do. We, we understand that. So it's obviously coming from the kingdom of darkness. Now, it might be, it could be a, a fear of people that we're afraid of what they will think or say or whatever, but there's still a demonic bent to it because Scripture says we're not fighting against flesh and blood. Ephesians 6, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We have an enemy that does not want us to move in the things of God. He certainly doesn't want us to encourage other people in their faith. He doesn't want us to see healings. He doesn't want, to, want us to share our faith with other people. Those things are contrary to, to his kingdom, but very much in line with what God wants. And so we need to recognize that that, that spiritual opposition has a source. It's not God. It's not even those people that might make us afraid. And we need to push back against that, that, uh, that opposition and not allow it to, to suppress what God wants to do through us. Does that make sense? And another thing that I think um, is a problem in our culture for us in this whole idea is that we have been steeped in naturalism. We understand how things work. Science gives us so many answers to how things work in the here and now. We know about cause and effect and how those things, things happen. Uh, for example, we know germs and viruses and what to do in the natural, naturalism, to combat those things. You've heard me, uh, in the, probably the last couple of sermons that I've done, talk about a book that I read recently that really impacted my thinking, uh, especially about Scripture. It's called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. And the, uh, the, the authors of this book, Randolph Richards and Brandon O'Brien, they said this, This creeping naturalism in Western culture leads us to a posture the Bible calls a vice, lack of faith. When I, Randy, was living in a remote part of Indonesia, I was often awakened in the middle of the night by grave news. Quick, come to the dormitory. So-and-so is dying. That will wake you up in a hurry. The first few times it happened, I nearly killed myself, dressing and running full speed through the dark to rescue a student from the precipice of death, only to discover that he or she had a cold. The old take two pills and call me in the morning approach was literally the best treatment. Hundreds of students were sped toward recovery by the thousands of ibuprofen tablets I distributed. A few years later, I discovered the students considered me a man of little faith. All I did was give them medicine. They would always pray for the student after I left. In my worldview, we had quit praying for colds and ear infections a generation ago. We understood them, so God was no longer involved, although we never said it so crassly. This is a serious loss. We no longer had a loving father watching over us in the night. Our point is not that there is anything faithless about taking medicine. Our point is that at an unconscious level, our expectation that the universe operates according to natural laws excludes the possibility from our minds that God might intervene in our daily affairs. Whew. I'll be honest, when I read that, I was convicted. Science gives us lots of answers of how things work. And so for us today, it's easier for us to take some kind of medicine than it is to pray. And don't misunderstand, I'm not telling you not to take medicine. But when something goes wrong inside of you, what is your immediate reaction? What is your first choice? Is it to take medicine or is it to pray? 
And I'm not telling you I got that one down. I'm giving us a vision of where we ought to be. Are you with me? One of my favorite writers, C.J. Mahaney, he, he hits this from a, a totally different perspective, but I think one that, that, that's uh, very relevant. He said this, David was born in Uganda, the eldest brother in a family of six. When David was 13, his father was killed and his family reduced to utter poverty. His mother provided for the family through an itinerant labor and begging. Through a series of miraculous provisions, David came to the United States to study and work. He has now lived here for more than a decade. Having walked the Christian life in the poverty of Uganda and in the prosperity of America, David has a unique perspective. He says this, This may be confounding to you, but it was far easier being a Christian in the poverty of Uganda than in the affluence of the states. Prosperity tempts my laziness. It lulls me away from dependence upon the Lord. The affluence draws me toward passivity. It's a daily battle for dependence upon God versus dependence upon my own strength. Again, we understand how things work, even finances, if you will. And so we're more, we, we more tend to lean on our own understanding, if I can say it that way, instead of trusting in God. But see, when we, when we really have that level of trust that says, God, I'm going to trust you regardless of what this looks like, then we're more willing to step out in the things that the Holy Spirit is saying to do. Are you following me? We don't rely on ourselves, but we rely on the Lord and the authority that he has given to us. So let me show you what this, this means practically, but I'm going to lay a little bit of a, a foundation here um, before I can get into it. If you, if you speak only one language, which the vast majority of us Americans do, um, then you assume that there is a one-to-one correlation between languages. If I can say something in English, I assume that there should be a way to say that exact same thing in another language. Well, that's not always true. Cultures are different, but one of the the most obvious ways that you can see this is through the use of idioms that he bit off more than he could chew kind of thing. You know, we say things like he put his foot in his mouth. We all know exactly what that means, but it has nothing to do with actually literally putting a foot in your mouth, right? Or or he put all all his eggs in one basket. Has nothing to do with eggs or a basket, but we get it. But try to translate that into another language and you're going to have a little bit of trouble. So there are things that are like that, that we have difficulty. And it's not just that. There are cultural things that because of culture, we don't understand how people thought or would think in a different culture. And so trying to translate something, does that, does that all make sense? Trying to translate it is not going to work as well. So John 14:1, it says this, do not let your hearts be troubled. And the fact is that almost all translations in English translate that that phrase the same way. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And the reason it's translated that way is because from our Western perspective, Jesus is there with his disciples and he is saying words and we expect that because he is saying those words, he must be talking to them and expecting them to mentally assimilate this information that he's giving them. But that's not really what's going on here. Literally, what this says in the Greek is hearts don't be troubled. Jesus is is speaking into them his peace. He's not giving them a command, don't let your hearts be troubled. No, he's not telling them to, to, to stop being worried. No, he's speaking his peace into them. Are you following me? You know, more more than 
more than their ears being involved, I think, honestly, I think the only reason their ears were even involved is so that somebody could write this down so that we could get it later on. It has nothing to do with them actually hearing it. Think about when Jesus said to the storm, peace, be still. That storm didn't have any ears. And yet Jesus had the authority. He spoke into that situation. That's the same thing Jesus is doing here. Hearts, don't be troubled. I love that. Think about, uh, think about when Jesus told the guy, Matthew 9, 6, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Jesus wasn't praying in that situation. You know, if we think of, of prayer as being talking to the Father, he's not praying. He's speaking into the situation. And please recognize, I'm not, I'm not telling you not to pray. Right? Jesus prayed apparently quite a lot. He would often withdraw to desolate places and pray. They still have the NIV. He would often withdraw to lonely places and pray is what the NIV says. Um, scripture tells us that we should pray. I get that, all right? But there's also a place that we need to speak with authority into situations just like Jesus did. It's apparently, you know, think about it, it's apparently God's uh, standard operating procedure. W when he created the world, what did he do? He spoke the word and it happened. Things came into existence and that's, that's what Jesus is doing. He's speaking into these situations and it's changing those situations because of the authority that he has. And Jesus has all authority and he is giving that authority to you and to me. We are his body. I mean, just... Just take that for a moment and let it sink in. You're a child of God. You're his ambassador speaking forth on his behalf. You have been granted authority. My goodness, that ought to change us. Just recognizing that. And kind of in a, a different vein, but really along the same lines. I think of, of David in the Old Testament when he said, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. David wasn't praising there. He's telling his soul, bless the Lord. He's speaking into his own situation. And you know, we, we've heard that idea for years. We get that. But, but think if you've never heard that concept before and somebody's telling you, you need to speak to yourself to change what you are doing or what you're thinking. That, that's radical, that's crazy, and yet it's clear that that's what we're supposed to do. I like the old hymn, Be still my soul, be still my soul, thy God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake, all now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still my soul, the waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. You know, those words, be still my soul, that, that is not from scripture, but it's a very scriptural concept that we speak into us and say, hey, soul, don't worry. God's got this. Some people don't like the fact that I talk to myself, but um, this can be, this can be a, a good thing right here. Think about this. When the, the preacher or whoever comes up at the end of the service and gives the benediction, the literally good word, that is not just a chance for one more final thought from that person. No, this is, this is literally speaking a blessing into the hearers that are there. It's coming from a place of spiritual authority. Are you following me? Think about the, the Old Testament story of Ezekiel and the, and the dry bones. 
Ezekiel 37, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh Lord God, you know. And then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live and I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and will cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied, there came a sound and behold, a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. Ezekiel there is not praying. He is speaking into that situation the things that the Holy Spirit is guiding him to say, right? And that's really the point. When we're, we're talking about using the gifts of the Holy Spirit, how does that happen? It's by the, the Holy Spirit guiding us, right? It's by following what he's, he's asking us to do. See, we, we have, I think in, in our culture, we have this propensity to want to categorize things. We want everything to be nice and neat and tidy. And so we've got this list of the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. And so anything that comes from the Holy Spirit must clearly fit into that nice, neat, tidy little list. But I'm not so sure that's true. See, I think that's some overarching things that he gave us so that we could kind of get the concept. But I'm certainly not going to limit God to that list right there. And, and even think about this. When, when somebody gives a word, can you always clearly and without question identify whether it is a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom, or a prophecy? I know I can't all the time. And so, you know, I think we need to, 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 to not be so concentrating on what was that gift. No, that was the Holy Spirit working in this situation. Are you with me? I, I, I like the, the story of Peter and John when they went to the the temple and the guy is there begging for arm, oh, for arms, for alms, <laughs> maybe legs, I don't know, sorry. Um, for <laughs> he's begging for money and, and uh, they, they say, well, uh, we don't have any money. So, so what did they do? They, they prayed for him, right? No, no, no. They, they, they called their friends and said, hey, would you guys pray for this guy? No, no, no. They just said, hey, buddy, we, we don't have any money, but we got something way better in the name of Jesus Christ rise up and walk. They're speaking into his situation. They're taking the authority right there and then. They're simply following what the Holy Spirit said to do. And we will have those same kind of things happen to us. As the people of God, we should be walking in that authority, allowing him to work through our lives. Now, how did, how did Jesus cast out demons? I'll give you a hint. It was not by asking his father to reach in there and take the demon out. No, he spoke with authority and said, get out of there. In Mark chapter one, great example. And they were, went to a Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching and they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority. I love the fact that it emphasizes that there and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. He spoke into the situation, 
said, you need, to, you need to be gone. And some of you know that one of my all-time favorite Bible stories is in Mark chapter 5. And for those of you that don't, in order to understand why it's one of my all-time favorite, you have to understand the Jewish concept of, of being ceremonially unclean. If, you're, if you come into contact with, with dead people, you're unclean. If you come into contact with, with somebody who is, is demon-possessed, you're unclean. If you come into contact with, with pigs, you're, 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 you're unclean. And so in Mark chapter 5, Jesus takes his disciples on a little field trip. They go into the, the, uh, the, the land of the Gerasenes. And there he takes them into a cemetery where there are dead people and there's a demon-possessed guy and there's a pig, or a herd of pigs, right? I, I, just, I love that about Jesus. He doesn't even care. He's just going to go and do it, right? And, and what did he do when he encountered that demon-possessed man? Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. He just spoke with authority. He said, get out of there. You and I have that authority. That freaks me out. It just, I'm just being honest with you. And yet it's true. Jesus said, greater works you're going to do. Come on. All of those illustrations that I just gave. And I hope you understand that what, really what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to, to, to increase our faith to recognize who we really are and that we have been given that authority. But all of those illustrations are, are kind of to set us up for one, one last one. I'm just gonna, we're, we're, we're getting close to being done. Hang in there. Um, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. I'm gonna spend a little bit more time on this one because I think this is, is really important. And, and I wanna jump into the middle and then we're gonna go back to the beginning of it. So we jump into the middle. Um, Lazarus has just died. Jesus and his disciples have, have just showed up on the scene there, okay? And there's some of the onlookers, people there, who say, John eleven thirty seven, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Think about that. In essence, it is the same thing that Mary and Martha had said earlier when they said, Lord, if you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. I mean, they both said that independently. So clearly, there's a bunch of people here who recognize that Jesus could have kept this tragedy from happening. The onlookers said it, Martha said it, Mary said it. They all get it. But there is, at the same time, they, they recognize he could have kept that from happening, but at the same time, there's apparently an unwillingness to suggest that maybe he could do something now. See, it's really easy to say he could have had this happen, he could have done this, because that's, it's past tense. Honestly, that's, that's really pretty simple. It doesn't take a lot of faith. I mean, nobody can, can prove it because it's already done. But to suggest that he could do it in the here and now, that takes a complete buy-in. That's total. And that's what Jesus had in this situation. I mean, think about it. What if, what if in this situation, instead of Jesus telling them to take the stone away, what if Jesus walked over to the tomb and kind of, went up against it and kind of whispered out of the side of his mouth, hey, hey Lazarus, come on, come on out of there. And, and don't misunderstand. I am not suggesting that, that shouting into an open tomb is the all-time one way to raise somebody from the dead, all right? Maybe there's a time for whispering. I don't know. But I do know that Jesus wasn't cowering. He wasn't wondering. He wasn't kind of hoping this might work. No, he was all in. He was forceful. He wasn't holding back. Get the stone out of the way. Lazarus, come forth. That's a complete buy-in. He knows 
this is what God is saying, and I'm going to act on it. I've got this authority. Are you with me? He had an assuredness, a confidence, a faith. This was the right thing to do, and he wants to put that same assuredness, that same confidence, that same faith in you and me today. But I want to take you back to the beginning of the story because I want to show you the, I think the patience, the graciousness, the compassion of the Lord in dealing with us. Story starts by telling us that, that Lazarus is very sick and so his, his sisters, Martha and Mary, send word to Jesus um, about Lazarus. And then we're told that he loved, Jesus loved the three of them, Lazarus, Mar- Martha and Mary, And so he hung around for a couple more days. Read it, John 11, five through six. Now now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That, That word so in this context seems so out of place to us. I mean, he loved them so he's not gonna go to them. But every, almost every translation I looked at uses either the word so or the word therefore. I mean, it's very clear. It's because he loved them that he's not going. That's insane to me. But see, I would suggest that Jesus in this situation, and probably every situation, was much more interested in seeing the kingdom of God manifested than he was in the time-space continuum that you and I live in. He wants to see, show what God can do in this situation. So a couple days later, it's finally time to go. And he tells his disciples that Lazarus has died. Verses 14 and 15, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Glad I was not there so that you may believe. If you get the full context here, this is another one of those statements that, that I find hard to fathom. This story is, is toward the end of chapter 11 of John's gospel. It's just over a chapter later Chapter 13 is the beginning of the night before Jesus goes to the cross. So this is very late in Jesus' visible earthly ministry. Uh, Biblical scholars, practically all across the board, say that the raising of Lazarus from the dead was way toward the end of Jesus' visible earthly ministry. So his disciples have already seen him do miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. I looked up a a timeline of Jesus' miracles. It shows 40 that are listed in the Bible. And please understand, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, we're told that that he went about healing people. And I mean, we, we don't get all of the picture. We just see a little tiny bit. But they they saw it again and again and again. And so this, this miracle is number 34 of 40 and 37 is when he healed the guy's ear that got cut off in the Garden of Gethsemane, all right? So this is really late. So the vast majority of his miracles, healing blind people, healing other physical infirmities, raising others from the dead, feeding thousands, walking on the water, calming a storm, turning water into wine, casting out demons, I mean, on and on, Right? The vast majority of those things have already happened and most of his disciples have been with him him to see most of those miracles. And so when Jesus said, Lazarus has died for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. You know, in my mind, I'm like, what? They They have already seen more miracles 
than most people who have ever lived are ever going to see in their entire lifetime, just in the last few years. They've seen it again and again and again. And he says, I want you to see this so that you may believe. See, in our, our normal response to something like that is, you guys, are you like really the slow class here? I mean, what a bunch of doofuses. Come on, I'm not the only one that thinks like that. But let's not make that label too strong too fast because if you and I were there, I'm pretty sure we would have been right there with them. But what I love in this story is that Jesus was so willing to show them again. He's getting ready to die soon. He's going, I'm glad I wasn't there because I want you to see this, guys. I want to show you one more time how this is done. I want to take you by the hand. I'm going to walk it through and let you see it. He's far more patient and gracious and compassionate. So let me put this into our context. As we move more and more into manifesting the gifts of the Holy Spirit, God is not going to say to you, get this exactly right or I'm done with you. He's never going to say that. No. He's far more gracious. He's going to take us right where we're at. He's going to gently lead us along. He's personally taking you by the hand and showing you. He's not tossing you out of the boat, sink or swim. No, if you, if you willingly step out of the boat, he's right there. Say, come on, grab my hand, I got you. That's the Lord. That's the one that wants to walk with you. He's with you every step of the way. And he wants to work through your life. It was just shortly after his conversion to Christianity that the great writer and thinker G.K. Chesterton was out on a street corner and was approached by a reporter who recognized him. And he asked uh, Chesterton, Sir, I understand that you recently became a Christian. May I ask you one question? Certainly, replied Chesterton. If the risen Christ suddenly appeared at this very moment and stood behind you, what would you do? Chesterton looked the reporter right in the eye and he said, He is. He is. He's with you. Whatever you're doing, wherever you're at, he's with you. That risen Christ who has been given all authority is with you. And he wants you to exercise that same authority in your life. He wants you to be willing to step out in the things that the Holy Spirit is asking of you. Don't be afraid. That's the, that's the, the darkness that's trying to squelch that. No, the kingdom of light says, let's go. Let's jump in. Let's make this reality. We're going we're gonna to receive communion together, and I'm going I'm to suggest that during that time that maybe you pray, and maybe there's somebody here that needs to, needs to hear a word that you have for them. And please don't misunderstand, this is not the the, the, the only place for the gifts of the Spirit. I think they should be out in the marketplace and in our jobs and in our schools and wherever, all right? But this is a good place to practice, listening to that voice of the Holy Spirit. So as we're, as we're communing today, maybe you're gonna have a, 
a word for somebody. Maybe you're going to need to speak into someone's situation here today.